Welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for the 7th of May with myself, Andre Svantanar, and my colleagues, Harry Morgan, Simon Thompson, and Peter White. I mean, this week, if you did a roundup of all the acquisitions of wind and solar farms by the oil companies, there were about five separate deals, uh, and they spent maybe $500 million. Um, but they're all little deals, so they're all they're probably buried in air worth noting. But in terms of the shift, that, that we could almost have that as a weekly thing, you know, oil buys renewables. Um, but, but I mean, you, you had built into your big oil spending splits the idea that any and um, one of the others was going to separate out their uh, public, a public company, which is renewables based rather than oils based um, so that they don't get dragged down by oil. That is quite um, probably a bad thing, I would have thought. I mean, we've talked about this before, that the oil companies in, in the States are. Uh, the, the trend is to kind of double down, as you say, in oil. But in Europe, it's more about getting into renewables or being more visible to be in to re- renewables. The reason for that, Simon, though, is clearly they think peak oil isn't coming till 2035. If you only do the sums, which say all the analysts agree that there's only going to be a couple of hundred million EVs by 2040, and all the analysts agree, i.e. except us, that oil will continue to grow. The number of cars on the road will continue to grow till about 20. 40 as well. Therefore, the number of ice cars on the road almost won't go down. That conclusion is still being taken seriously Uh by American oil companies. There will become a point where their cognitive rigidity (laughs) will be overcome and they will see that the dog is no longer a dog, it's a cat. Uh And they will realise that, oh dear, we're wrong. It's going to happen way sooner uh, Let's get a move on. The only thing is that American as a national trait has the uh, the ability to think big. And that, that when finally Chevron and uh, ExxonMobil realise that they are 10 years behind BP and Shell in transitioning to renewables, they will think big yeah. and they will accelerate and, and put all their effort into it. I, I think all of these companies are thinking too small right now and, and they're thinking too long term. Uh, I mean, what's really interesting is that in a period of time where these margins are huge, we'd expect to see huge amounts of spending from ExxonMobil and Chevron and ConocoPhillips just to sort of capitalise on a period of time where you can make so much money out of oil. But, I mean, ExxonMobil spending is down 50% last year. I mean, Chevron's down 40%. So it's it's interesting to see that they are aware that they can't simply be doing what they were doing before. Uh, but then saying that, You've got ExxonMobil saying that they're going to plough $100 billion into a carbon capture project, which very much infers that oil is is how their business will continue to operate in the future. Do they really think they can turn back time? Cue the song. Let's say the $100 billion moonshot works and they can make oil and somehow put it in cars and capture the carbon. General Motors is going to change its mind and start making ice vehicles again? Ford is going to change its mind? Uh, well, Europe's going to change its mind and allow those cars to operate in it? No, no, you can't. You can't. It's been done. It's over. <laughs> I just yeah. can't. I mean, it is. that's what they think. They think your, your article touched on, on the heart of the matter. 
if you're the CEO of ExxonMobil, can you wait a couple of quarters and then pretend it'll all go away and blow over because you're still making lots of profit? You know, if, if you think that, you need to be removed from office. Let's move on to the second story, which was the staggering proportions of the Chinese and their solar. Take it away, Andres. I think we're, we're the only people that have covered it in English, actually. A bit of background is that, well, I should, I should start out by saying what it is. So across five projects in Xinjiang, they've now been signed on to be developed. You have 17 gigawatts of solar power. And you have another three gigawatt in Qinghai province nearby, which has been tendered. And I just thought, wow, that's, that's gigantic. I should just cover it because you've got absolutely gigantic uh, development. But there were also some interesting um, features of the solar. It's not just, it's not just, oh, it's it's interesting that the the Urumqi, the capital city of Xinjiang, uh, you have you have a lot of industry flowing into these outer parts, into these desert provinces. I think the the heartlands of China and the east and the coast are almost too wealthy to be industri- as industrial as they used to be. They're, they're sort of shifting to a service economy, aren't they? Mm. Uh, uh, um, yes, I imagine That's part so. Of the plan. Uh, and, uh, and so now you, you have a, a shift uh, of, of heavy industry into these places like Xinjiang, and especially in, in Mongolia. I don't think that's so much because the other places are... Yeah, it's all about profit per employee or profitability per square foot. Factories, you need... When China looked at its uh, sort of modernization in the sort of 70s and 80s, it wanted to, it realized that everything that America told it to do was to invest in sort of agribusinesses. You know, we don't really want you for, uh, we don't want you to have your own telecoms industry. We want to supply it. We don't want you to have your own steel manufacturing. Well, we want to supply the plant that you um, make things with. But eventually, they so they climbed the ladder, which is we need to make our own stuff and we need to make the machines which make our own stuff. And then we need to sell those machines to the rest of the world, because otherwise you can't make enough profit to become a, a high uh, GSD business, the GSD country. So they've ignored the advice of the Western community and and tried to become good at what the West is good at. Eventually, you have to be good at service services and you have to be good at the internet and they are intrinsically more profitable businesses and your manufacturing needs to be efficient so it needs to go where the cheap energy is and where the cheap labor is and i think for now the the cheap energy in these provinces up in the north is due to coal but i think that'll change to solar yeah so so what happened with this story is uh, the the, the city authorities for urumqi the capital of xinjiang decided well we want 17 gigawatts of solar generation uh, capacity that is and they went to, to a business forum in Shenzhen in uh, Guangdong province in the south and they they attracted some developers there's a few oddities here so the, it's actually located within the city di- districts for some reason one of the city districts just has this big tri- triangle that sticks out into the desert so they're going to build it all all there is that an example of China's government being decentralized and all the local authorities having a lot of power why would they want it to be under their direct administrative control i mean it is interesting but do you have an answer for us to your, for your own question <laughs> that's, the, that's the that's the key thing here is ha- i was going to ask you what you know could you imagine uh, the london mayor or the new york mayor saying you know what? In fact, New York's a, a, a good case in point. Let's take upstate New York and, and put a load of solar panels and let's fire the utilities 
probably wouldn't it probably would be beneath their administrative control and it would be beyond their capability to do it perhaps china can do that china says well we're being told to decarbonize if we build these projects we can uh, live without the the coal plants um what have we got you know i wouldn't be surprised if that big triangle that you drew above the uh, region was um actually someone changed the boundary just to say look we want all that sunshine so, so to yeah the, so the boundary was changed at some point i don't know if that was why or if it was that recent but it is it's certainly an oddity the um, gurbanton gut desert <laughs> Yeah, it does think, look strange on this map that's posted on, on, on their story. Have you ever looked at a map of America and <laughs> wondered why they're called the square states? Oh. Because people just drew lines on a map. Mm. And they, and well, that's they that's what's happened here. Down. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what's happened here. How Sorry. does this, you know, will this eat up more solar panels than we expected in China? When will this build out happen? I think, yeah, some of them are coming online by 2023. I don't know if it'll necessarily increase the overall scale or if this is the kind of thing that people expected to happen. It's certainly a lot more than, it will involve certainly a massive increase in this particular province compared to expectations. I think there's been a you shift back to You have to learn towards... Chinese, Andres. You mm. have to learn Chinese and then we can send you there. Yeah. And then we could have the pleasure of you still being awake at this time in China, which is about eight hours ahead of us. And True. Before you, before you go home, joining our our, um, our our podcast and telling us what's going on in China. Some we need someone in China, uh, and and in in the next couple of years, it's going to be essential that we send someone to China. And meanwhile, in you, you, the profile on Chile was was another thing by Andres. I don't want to. I don't think we should in the podcast talk about profiles too, too in too much depth because. There's a lot of work that goes in, into it. This is this is an excellent profile of of Chile and how it's uh, it's mining eats the electricity in the country and perfect natural conditions for both solar and wind. Um, so, you know, are, are, are aiming to supply that. Uh, anything you just want to pull out from that, uh, Andres, for a few seconds? Those are those are the main important points. The the Atacama Desert has, I th I think, it's about fifty percent better like solar resource than California, or about uh, double the power that you'd get from a solar panel in Germany. It's the best place in the world. The wind, though, you can't really build traditional offshore wind. You have to kind of wait until a floating wind because it's the no continental depth, shelf. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same as California. It's exactly and, and, the same. And if you look at onshore. The places with the good wind are just a maze of little valleys and mountains. Um, so clearly you're going to have massive, you already are having um, huge photovoltaic build out in the Atacama Desert for the mining industry. The energy minister has, already, has said that they want to do something similar in the south, although there'll be some in the Atacama Desert with hydrogen. Um, but it'll really be something of a challenge, at least to get floating offshore wind online or to manage to build transmission into these mountains. But he actually said we could supply 13 percent of the of, of the world's hydrogen. And I don't know if that's a vain boast, but I think it could be a hydrogen giant like uh, Australia for sure. Well, if you when you look at the um, just the natural resources, the irradiance and the, uh, the, the the strength of wind and and you haven't yet built out your infrastructure, it is just a vain boast. But the fact is, um, there are lots of places that could supply 13 or 15% of the world's hydrogen. I think they all will. 
Harry, uh, steel and iron prices are soaring. Yeah, I suppose that comes nicely on from um, from what Peter was saying about hydrogen, because hydrogen is definitely one of those um, the technologies that's going to be key to to steel decarbonisation. I mean, it's I, as far as I can see at the moment, it's, it's the only one. Um, I mean, there's there's work being done with um, electrolytes and stuff um, that don't use hydrogen, but it's it's very much pointing towards hydrogen being used for direct reduction of iron and then moving on to sort of the electric arc furnaces, which you can then inj- inject scraps into as well. So that's that's how steel is looking like it would be decarbonised. But the, ask, the article this week was more focused on the commodity prices for both uh, iron and steel, which had been rocketing over the past few weeks for anyone who's been, been tracking the markets. And I think with the long-term dynamics of the market, these prices actually could be here to stay. I mean, we're going to see this massive flurry of economic activity focused on infrastructure build-out, all while steelmakers are having to reduce their CO2. And at the moment, because there's no sort of commercial option, uh, a commercial way of doing that, their production levels will have to fall. Um, and we've seen that in China. We've seen um, the Chinese government really cracking down on mills in the Tangshan region. Companies like HBIS really struggling. They haven't been able to actually output the steel that they're used to doing. I think there's that area is responsible for about 14% and they're having to cut capacity by nearly half uh, by the end of the year. So what we're seeing really is this is massive shortfall of supply and um, sort of a massive surge in demand following COVID-19. That What that's going to mean for iron ore and steel prices, which have quite a long lead time in terms of setting up capacity, is going to be really interesting. I mean, obviously, what we can really hope is that during this period of time when we've got high margins, instead of really racing to create new production capacity using blast furnaces, basic oxygen, oxygen furnaces, that's really focused on the innovation side of things. Um, and and sort of creating decarbonised steel value chains. The interesting thing to think about is that Chinese companies who have really operated on low margins over the past few years might do quite poorly through this. Uh, And then you've got the companies in Japan and South Korea, I mean, POSCO is a particular example, um, and and Nippon Steel. They could be really well placed, uh, having already invested quite a lot of time and money into green steel to actually really benefit going forwards. That's why it's really important to have carbon border taxes. If the Chinese can flood the global markets with cheap steel, which is not made in a green way, and you don't have a carbon border market, then we'll end up with all the steel companies too nervous to invest in green energy in the first place. And the other thing is we don't want steel and iron companies. They seem to be a much more responsible bunch than the oil companies. They're not listening to their shareholders and saying just make more profit now that the costs are up don't build any more plant just make more profit and give it to us or buy back your own shares and that that's not the right way right thing to do they, they 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 should and we hope we believe they will invest in green production every bit of new capacity should be green yeah, definitely. I think we'll see the early stages of that happening in 2025 and really pushing towards commercial uh, scale in 2030. Well, because by 2050, what... by 2050, the requirement for steel will go down. This is a, you've got to remember, this is a transition. This is a 25 to 30 year global transition. We're doing it to all of our infrastructure. We're rebuilding it. Once we've re- finished rebuilding it, we'll pause for breath and, and, and those the requirements will halve. Yeah, I think we've, got def- we've definitely got the uh, steel demand peaking sort of around 2050 at least, um, if not before. And it's definitely something that could be accelerated if um, if sort of ideas of a circular economy are brought forward. I just want to sort of come to- back and talk about that carbon border tax piece because there's 
the issue that I can see with it in terms of creating sort of fair trade regulations is it comes back to the story we were writing the other week is that China does actually have a lesser ability to decarbonize its steel purely based on the fact that it, it has less scrap uh, availability. Uh, and I'm not sure how that can be reflected in the carbon border tax when countries like the US have a less what availability? Less availability of scrap steel that they can use scrap, when they yeah. stock. So inherently they can buy works. scrap. They can buy scrap from anywhere. Yeah. So that that's that will be the interesting thing is is whether or not if carbon border taxes are implemented for the steel industry, whether or not there will be some sort of um, complementary measure which will uh, incentivize the sort of distribution of uh, steel around the world. I mean, Turkey is a prime example of a country that imports loads of steel, um, loads of scrap steel that it then uses uh, in its steel production. So. Uh, whether or not that's something we'll see in China will be will be really interesting to see.